1: Welcome to the Sharkpreneur podcast. This is your co-host Seth Green. Today I've got the, fort- the good fortune to interview a friend of our show, one of the very few people who have the distinct honor of being two-time guests on Sharkpreneur, um, none other than David Finkel, who is an ex-Olympic level athlete turned business millionaire. He is the Wall Street Journal and Business Week bestselling author of 12 Business Weeks books. We're going to talk today about his new bestseller, The Freedom Formula, How to Succeed in Business Without Sacrificing Your Family Health or Life. And we're going to talk about his concrete behavioral steps of how you and your company can work smarter and create more value in less time. He's also the CEO of Maui Mastermind, North America's premier business coaching company. Um, And I am super excited to have him back. Last time he was here, I had a page of notes for my own business. I can't wait to see what happens today. David, thank you so much for joining us.
2: A pleasure, Seth. I'm really happy to be here.
1: All right. So, um, you know what? I don't think I even, I don't think we even talked about in the first interview, your ex, your Olympic athlete stuff. Um, just because it's in, I got to ask, what sport were you an Olympic athlete sure. in? Can you give us a, just a couple minutes on that?
2: Yeah, so I used to play field hockey in the U.S. national team, and then I was training to play in the Olympics. We didn't qualify for 1992. We missed it out by one game. We tied a game we needed to win. And then we all stuck out for 1996, and we qualified for that. And unfortunately, in 94, I grew a tumor in my hip. It turned out to be benign, but it cut my playing day short. They didn't find it for about a year too late. So I ended up on the, the date they were having the Olympic trials a week prior that I was getting surgery on my hip.
1: Oh, my God. Obviously, you're OK.
2: I'm OK. And that was a long time ago. I mean, that was, uh, you know, obviously. T-
1: 90, yeah, 20 plus years ago,
2: 20 plus years ago. I, I laugh at that now. And probably one of the best things I, I, I look at it as, you know, the the trauma of that morphed into, well, what did I want to do? And some of the opportunities I had taken advantage of now I never would have had I played in the Olympics, I probably would be coaching field hockey right now for some university or something like that versus having launched and sold several companies.
1: That is an excellent point. A, a silver lining for sure. And uh, <laughs> um, so I, I did not realize, and many some of our listeners and viewers probably didn't know that men's field hockey is an Olympic sport. I didn't know there was men's field hockey at all.
2: Yeah. So. In the US, not a big sport. It's why a lot of us lived. I played and lived overseas for semi-pro um, in Australia and the oh, UK. Wow.
1: I did not know there was semi I pro field hockey for me. Yeah,
2: I mean, you're looking subsistence living. It was a blast to be in your 20s playing over. Oh, I'm sure like around
1: that. the world. Yeah.
2: For rent and meals is basically what we called it.
1: <laughs> um, there, I don't know if you've read this or not, but John Grisham has a novel called Playing for Pizza.
2: Absolutely. Great book about playing in Italy. I loved it. I yes. loved it.
1: Yes. All right. So now that we've gotten that aside, let's talk about what our listeners want to hear about sure. your freedom formula. So obviously, you've grown and sold and still run many successful multi million dollar enterprises. How did the freedom formula come about? What prompted you? What inspired you to write it?
2: Sure. So the first path through, uh, uh, there are kind of two waves for me. One was pre-kids. So 22 years ago, 23 years ago, I was at a point in my first major company. Um, it was successful by every measure from the outside. I was making more money than I ever thought I was. I was in my late 20s, but I was working 80 plus hours a week. Um, I was stressed out. I was on the road traveling two, two and a half weeks out of every month. And I had this moment of, is this all that it is? The money meant a lot less than this idea of having some time freedom. So my business partner and I sat down and, and looking back, I can see he actually had young kids at the time. I didn't. So I was an ignorant person about that. I mean, you and I both laugh. We talked about having kids that are roughly the same age as both of us have three kids. And we sat down and said, okay, if we're going to build this business better, how can we make this business independent of the two of us? And that was my first wave, learning to build a business independent of the owner. But in 2009, when my first two sons were born, twins, I, I had no idea what it was like to be a parent. I thought, oh, you, you know, could it couldn't be that hard. You know, a billion people do it every, every day, right? <laughs> and then I have my kids, and I'm like, this is hard. And what I realized was going on the road traveling was no longer an option. I didn't want to be away. I didn't want to miss a moment of it. So I, I've switched the view. If, if you can imagine the analogy I like to share is, you know, I'm going to the moon. I have a certain amount of consumables of oxygen, of food, of, of water, of fuel. And so I set a hard stop. I said, I'm going to work no more than 40 hours across all my businesses. And at that time, I owned several companies. Um, Today, I still own several companies. I'm on the boards of several others. And I said, I'm going to take a minimum of 10 weeks of vacation every year, of real vacation, not just the, I'm going to work remotely from pretty spots. And when I started doing that second round, it changed how I approached, how I scheduled, how I structured my day, how I interacted and led my team. And as I found ideas that worked for me, I shared and experimented inside my company. And then because obviously we've coached businesses, we've coached thousands of companies, we started to experiment with our clients who run small and mid-cap companies. And what we found was these ideas were applicable across the board, but we found certain things that didn't matter that we could stop doing that didn't work. And so this formula is really the byproduct of this last two years of trying to put down in words what it took us, you know, a decade to figure out in actual practice. So people say, you know, is this academically based? No, I'm not an academic. I'm a business person. I I tested this out in the laboratory of the marketplace, and that's where these ideas were proven out.
1: Okay, so that is absolutely fantastic. A lot of our viewers and listeners obviously can relate to and resemble some of those remarks, the overworked, overstressed um, stuff we can all relate to. So you talk about obviously a very sexy concept, a business that runs without you. So tell me a little bit about how that works. How did you create those systems and processes? And how did you scale them? Because obviously, if you build the systems to serve a half a million dollar business, they're going to break. Um, we had a show yesterday with a gentleman who started out working in a coffee shop for minimum wage and built a business. And in year three, went from like 900,000 to 20 million. Yeah, that's right. 12 months and everything broke. So tell us a little bit about how you created the process and then how it scales.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting that that what you needed a half a million versus 10 million versus 100 million versus a billion or above. I was was talking with a friend of mine who I wrote scale with uh, my last book. He was one of the guys who helped found Priceline.com. And I, I was laughing. I thought I had gone through scaling curves of you know doubling or tripling in a year and doing that again. And again, his comment was, Dave, we went from zero to 200 million in sales in two years. And we went from 200 million in sales to a billion in two more years. I was laughing. I, I've never had to hire a thousand people in one year like they've had to go wow, through. So
1: that's insane.
2: Yeah, it is. So these ideas apply. So I'm going to give a couple. So first of all, we call the core concept building strategic depth. And strategic depth means that your business is strong enough to to be able to run independent of any one person. And at first, this scares most business owners say, well, I I get I want to be independent of me, but then their control muscles come back in. We can talk about that later, perhaps. But they think, how's my team going to react? This idea of of me saying we're going to build this to be independent of any one person. Their first fear is, oh, my team thinks I'm going to go lay on a beach, which is furthest thing from the truth. No business owner I know who's a great business owner is lazy. In fact, we're all driven. We work really, really um, long hours initially and later, even when we're not actively in everything in the business, we still do important things. The second fear though, Seth, is they're thinking, oh my gosh, my staff's going to be afraid that I'm looking to make them um, dispensable. And that's just not true. If you approach it the right way with your team. So I'll give an example. If I'm going to talk with, with my company and explain this concept, I say, look, as it stands right now, If you, Mary, were to go on a vacation right now, when you come back, you come back to a massive mess. It's like two weeks of work is piled up for you. We don't want that. Plus, you know, if I were to get hurt or Angie were to get hurt or we needed to take care of one of our family members for an extended time, I want us to start moving in the direction of building a business that's that's strong enough to handle those kinds of shocks and setbacks so that we are all covered. We're all protected. And so we're going to start to systematize the business. We're going to start to pay attention to cross-training each other about functions so that we've got each other's backs. And over time, that's going to allow all of us to do more high-value work, have a bigger impact, make the business more successful, and give us opportunities to grow professionally. Is that what you all want to buy? Can you all buy into that? And they're going to say yes, of course. So the fear we have about strategic depth is that everyone's going to react poorly. If we handle it maturely, 90% 90% of the people are going to get it. Those people who don't, that's a warning sign. That's a warning sign that you've got somebody in the team that might not be the right fit. So if we think about it, strategic depth is built on three legs. Really good business systems, a great team that has been invested in to be cross-trained with each other's functions, and finally, a culture that believes in systems over time. You talked about this, this guy who had his half a million dollar, $900,000 um, cafe and went to $20 million. Systems won't take you there. They won't because the people who, who know the systems at the, the million-dollar mark, they're the ones that need to upgrade the systems, refine the systems, scrap the systems, and rebuild them at the 10 $20, 30000000 million dollar mark. So the only way this works is if systems aren't, oh, let's create the manual of how we do the business, but instead become a discipline over time of consistently creating systems, cross-training people on them, and then refining, scrapping, and rebuilding as you go. It's it's a nonstop thing. It's not a one-shot deal.
1: Okay, so I've got a page already. So let's break that down a little bit. You talked about how do you you talked about the manual? And I think that's probably the image people have in mind when they think a business system or a standard operating procedure or SOP. How do you take that binder, first yeah, of right all, of right. most people think, oh my God, I don't have the time to create 300 pages or whatever it is. How do you create something that's living and breathing and growing and tells people so that people know what they're supposed to do every day and it's not just in their head and someone else can fill in for them? That?
2: That's right. So I remember, and I'm gonna share an example here. And, and for those that are able to watch this, I'm gonna put a quick picture from 120, 121 in the book, The Freedom Formula. But essentially what we do is this. We, we stop thinking about this manual, which is done. You you create it, then you're done. That, that's, that comes from the days of, oh, make it like McDonald's, a franchise. It's crap. It does not work in the real world. McDonald's, it partially works because their business is so fixed and firm in time, and it just doesn't change much. Even still there, the only reason that works is because of all the hundreds of millions they spend on the training behind the scenes of that, which you never hear about. What actually works is we think about this as we call it your UBS, the we, we used to call it your, your business system, but the acronym for that is a little bit inappropriate. So we added the word <laughs> ultimate. And this is a true story. 22 years ago, this is where we came. We said, we're going to build the system of how we do our company so that when we sell the company, we have something more valuable. What we didn't realize was that applies to every company. So if I think about this as a collection of folders on a cloud-based system, I'm going to think about like 1.0 sales marketing, 2.0 operations, 3.0 finance, 4.0 um, leadership, 5.0 HR. Or if I'm, you know, I might break apart sales and marketing. I might add if I'm, a, if I'm a manufacturer, I'll probably add in their purchasing and break it apart from production. I mean, a little bit of common sense with that. But what I do is I, I start by just getting my main five to seven categories. And I pick one of those folders to start with. So, for example, I might pick um, HR. And I say, great, I'm going to work on 3.0 HR. And so I think to myself, what are the three to five, maybe seven subfolders? I might have... 3.1 hiring, 3.2 onboarding, 3.3 benefits admin. And then all I do is I load what I currently have. For most people, Seth, the business systems they have are one of three places. Unfortunately, the biggest place is it's informally in the heads of their key staff. It's never been written down. If someone leaves, it's like taking a whiteboard that's been put on there with, with you know this uh, semi-permanent pen and just wiping it all clean. You lose all that knowledge, all that institutional know-how, gone. The second place it is is informally in little Post-its or sticky notes or, or scraps of paper around someone's desk that were little cheat sheets for them. The third place is in, it, it might be in a, in a document, but it's probably just on an individual's computer, their laptop or desktop. It's not been centralized. So if I think about doing it on a Dropbox or a Google Drive or um, you could use, you know, Microsoft has their, from the 365, has their storage with that. We, we use a company called Ignite. I mean, they're all the same type of thing. Um, And what it does is it lets us centralize those documents to one place. So I load what I have, and then I ask one question. What's the one document or the one system, the one checklist, the spreadsheet, the video training, the one system that the lack of it hurts me the most in this area? And then in the next 90 days, I work on that one system. And then the next quarter, I ask the same question. And at first, it goes very slow. But the moment I start doing it in HR, then perhaps my admin person who runs my administrative side of the business, she sees it and says, well, let me do the same thing over here. And then my marketing person, he sees it and says, you know what, I can do the same thing over here. And now I've got three or four champions doing it in different areas. And here's the key part though, it's not a one and you're done. It's just a little bit of extra effort, five, 10% extra as you go through your typical work week. Along the way, so it becomes this cultural commitment, not just a, oh, it's a task that I check off. Because the task that you check off, it'll be out of date the moment you finish it. And it needs to be a commitment of the whole company to create, to use, to refine, to put back. And I'll go one more comment here, Seth. The number one thing that screws people up on this is they don't name their files the right way. The hardest thing is if I can't find what I'm looking for in this, quote, UBS, unquote, within probably 30 seconds to a minute, I think it doesn't exist. So I recreate it. Now I've got two versions. So my changes get split between two so that they're less valuable. And if they're less valuable, people don't use it as much. If people don't use it as much, it becomes even less valuable and it degrades that way. So I, I, I make sure I name the files keyword rich for how someone would search for it, not how I would search for it. So are people going to look for it as the, you know, the marketing scorecard, the marketing metric, the marketing dashboard? So just getting clean on some of these titles make it easy for people to find. And if they can search the folder and find it, then everything starts to spiral up and becomes better.
1: Okay, that makes a ton of sense. So let's say, let's leave the systems conversation for a sure. minute. We've got to have people to run those systems. How do you hire? What type of, is there, you mentioned HR, is there a system for hiring? Is there a system for training? How does, how does that get built and how do those work?
2: Yeah, great question. So, you know, a key role of any leader is to make sure they have the right people on their team. And so I'll, I'll just share two quick ideas that I found that most people do wrong when they're hiring. Um, the biggest mistake that they do is they hire blind. What do I mean by that? They have a vague notion of who they're looking for. And, and I can show this in experience because when I hire the first person that doesn't work out and hire the second person, almost always the second person is slightly better not because necessarily I did a different search process. The big difference is I know more cleanly who I want. So what we tell our clients is before I hire, the gold standard is I figure out who do I want to do this role, what qualities, background experiences, technical skills, um, cultural fit matches, um, and others. And I put it in writing. We actually have a document we use with clients for that part of it. And by having it in writing, we narrow that down. to we call them the must haves? Because I can't have a wish list of 27 things. I need a left-handed Russian speaker (laughs) who also knows coding and, by the way, is incredibly good with people and knows accounting. No way. I need the three to five absolute non-negotiables, and I hire for the non-negotiables. That's the first thing. If I hire for the non-negotiables, my odds of of hiring well increase. The second one I watch people screw up all the time is they, they take 20, 30 hours in the interview to find the right person. And then they blow it by how they, quote, make an offer, unquote. There are certain things that people all know to be true that are just not true. The best practice is I never make an offer. Instead, as I go to my interview process, on the midway part through the interview, I clarify to make sure we're on the same page, money, what the travel and other requirements of the position are. I make sure that they really want it while they're still in the selection frame. And so in my very last interview or second to last interview, all I have to do at this point is I've already talked about money. I've talked about what onboarding looks like. I've talked about why they want the position, why they think we should pick them. And now I just say, you know what, congratulations, you're a person. I don't, I don't say here's my offer because then it flips the roles and now I have to kind of sell them wrong. Instead, at that point, I simply congratulate them. We've already had all the hard conversations in the, in the selection frame of mind when they're on their best behavior. And this goes from having one out of three people drop out to having probably closer to 90% or more say yes. Because again, they're thrilled. It's the right frame. And that's important.
1: I love that. That's a great way to, I mean, it's almost like you're applying advanced sales methodology to the hiring process. Of course. Uh Uh, All right. So I I know myself, there's a number of us who are kicking ourselves right now for not thinking of that. So we talked about team, we talked about systems. What about culture? So so many times we hear we hire for personality, we train for skill, we hire for cultural fit. How do you actually, and there's been tons of books written about it, but none really from the aspect of, okay, we've got our systems and we've got our knowledge and we know how to get that, communicate that to our new hire. But, what is? How do you imbibe? How do you define what your culture is, and then how do you inject yeah. it into your new people?
2: That's right, because culture is is a great buzzword, <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, it's really it's, hard to define, right? It is. And and it's not just hard to define; it's hard to behave. Like, what the heck is this? So, every business has a culture, just like every group has a certain feel. We we call this one of the five accelerators that make the formula go faster. This is Accelerator 4. We call it Cultivate Your Culture. And so I'll give one really important idea. It's Chapter 8 for anyone who's reading the book. And specifically, we, we think to ourselves, like, I'll give an example with my company. One of our cultural elements is we eat our own cooking. We're a business coaching company, and we recognize for us to be as good as we can be, we have to be a product of our own coaching process. Okay, what does that that sounds great, but what does it mean? So inside of a company, I want your listeners to think, What are the cultural elements that we want to have? You know, we're a high-integrity place. Okay, well, what does that specifically mean? So I think of what the element is, okay? In this case, we eat our own cooking. And then I think to myself, what's one story that embodies that? Culture comes from things like sharing stories, celebrating victories, highlighting different elements, values that you stop and ask about, modeling it, but storytelling is one of the easy ones. And so here's the cool part. In my culture, we in Maui, we have six cultural elements that we focus on. So all I need to know is the culture plus six stories. That's all I need to know at an absolute minimum. I can even cheat by having it written out. Or we talked about systems. If my company is larger, I can have me, the CEO or the founder, sharing in a video here's the cultural element. And so if I were doing this for Maui, what I would say is hey, here at Maui Mastermind, we believe in eating our own cooking, which means We have to be a product of our own coaching program. What does that look like in Maui? You'll notice that all of our key leaders in the company have their own Maui coach. We actually spend the money for them to have a coach. Every quarter, we create our one-page plan of action, just like we do with our clients. Matter of fact, um, every week, we do our big rock report, just like we do with clients. And I'll give an example for it. Um, The other day, it was about uh, two months ago, Teresa, who is our COO, um, she did something really great. One of the things we tell our clients to is that most business owners stink at actually sharing victories. Why? Because they're afraid if they share the good stuff with people that they'll be demotivated or they'll ask for a raise or they keep thinking about all the other stuff that's left to do. And if we as an owner can't give ourselves permission to feel victories and progress, then we're not particularly motivating for other people. So Teresa had shared on two months ago, we're in our team meeting and she led us starting off by having all of us write down two or three victories from the prior the prior two weeks before we had met before. And then she had us share that. These are the same things that we coach our clients for. And when you're faced with a tough choice here, we want you to ask, how would we coach a client to face the same situation? So that's me telling a story and I've transmitted an important cultural element. So I think of the element, one story, I match them up. And at a minimum, I'm going to retell that story to every new person who comes in and and I can scale that up. That's one layer of starting to slowly manually build your culture
1: that is awesome i absolutely love it i know we're running short on time and we could spend and you do spend days and days and days working on this and talking about this um where can our sharkpreneur followers and fans go um to learn more get the book and i know you've got a very special offer for them that's
2: right. So first of all, they can get a copy of the Freedom Formula at any of the booksellers they like to be. If that's Amazon or Barnes & Noble or if they're in Denver, it's the Tattered Cover, whatever they like, wherever they like to buy books. But if they're looking to find out more about the book and once they get it, they should go here anyways because we have a real good value add with the book about a toolkit. It's called freedomtoolkit.com. freedomtoolkit.com. They can get their copy of the book there or it links to the different booksellers. Um, but one more thing, if they simply get a copy by October 15th, and email our office, and I'll give the email in just a moment. Um, and it's an honor system, so I'm hoping they'll be be good about that. We've got one more bonus, which is um, about three months ago, I recorded with a really good friend of mine, an entrepreneur who happens to be a CPA as well. We did a one-hour training called the Five Profit Levers. And this is a six-page PDF tool that we created for our coaching clients. So these are the five best leverage points in any company to increase profit margins and bottom-line cash and, and so they'll get the video and the PDF tool. They just simply email um, that they've gotten the book to bonus, B-O-N-U-S, bonus at MauiMastermind.com. That's my coaching business. Bonus at MauiMastermind.com by October 15th. So I think they're going to love the book. It's basically going to tell them, look, everyone says work smarter. And that's crappy advice because no one says how to do it. So this book is my best attempt to give what we consider how to operationalize working smarter in behavioral, concrete terms of actually what you do as an individual and as a company to actually work smarter.
1: Okay, that is awesome and a very generous offer. We will put the freedomtoolkit.com and the bonus at mastermind.com information in the show notes for everyone who's watching or listening to take advantage of. David, thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating interview as always. We greatly appreciate the value you're adding to the Sharkpreneur environment.
2: I I appreciate that. I thought you were gonna say ocean there, Seth. It's been a pleasure and thank you for having me back a second time. It really is a great treat for
1: me. Awesome, thanks everybody for watching and listening. We will see you next time.